welcome to Hacker Public Radio, my name is Zoke. Today I don't have an episode for you, but I'm going to let you listen to something Stephen Fry did. This is recorded at the iTunes Live Festival, and Stephen Fry speaks about the history of copyright, his thoughts on file sharing, and the future of entertainment. A few things I should point out before I put this on. He's released under Creative Commons, so if you want to learn anything more about him, go to stephenfry.com, that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-F-R-Y.com. Sierra Tango Echo Papa Hotel Echo November Foxtrot Romeo Yankee.com and it's there under the audio and video stuff. Stephen Fry's got a long, interesting history. Look it up on Wikipedia if you want to learn some things about him. He's a comedian, he's an actor, he's a writer, he's done documentaries, a bunch of things. He started off fairly early on, he did a show called A Bit of Fry and Laurie, which was he was Stephen Fry, obviously, the Fry, and Hugh Laurie was the guy that did the Laurie bit, so a bit of Fry and Laurie, and they they did sketches or skits and that sort of thing. Very funny, some of that stuff, I watched that growing up. He does touch a little bit on that in the episode. He talks about Hugh Laurie, who is now, of course, the guy that plays the main guy in House. He was also the guy that played the father in Stuart Little, and he's done a bunch of other sh- things as well. He's become a sort of mainstream you know, Hollywood actor, as it were, almost now. And there, there is a little bit that they talk about that, so that's why I'm explaining that bit. It'll make more sense if you have no clue about that. Anyway, enough about that. I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to let Stephen Fry carry on. Hello. Hello. We've, thank you very much for coming tonight. We've got a wonderful night of entertainment lined up. My name's Tom Dunmore, I'm editor-in-chief of Stuff magazine, and I'm quivering with joy because just over there is Stephen Fry, and we're all going to get to... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We're all going to get to meet him in just one second. Stephen's going to talk for about half an hour, and then you'll get a chance to ask him questions. Now, after the Q&A, we've got some fantastic music, too, um, so it's going to be a brilliant night, but without further ado... Let me introduce novelist, actor, comedian, self-professed king of Twitter, prince of swimwear, lord of the dance, Stephen Fry. Thank you. How kind. Thank you very much. Oh, my great heavens. Oh, my goodness gracious me, how wonderful. Thank you for coming, and thank you for all bringing cameras. That's so nice of you. I hoped you would. Um, it's a house, uh, and it's round. It's, it's so fantastically well-named. Um, the house round. Welcome, everyone, to, I think, day 12 of, uh, of the iTunes Festival, and you've got a magnificent evening of rocular, rolular music uh, approaching, which I know will excite you to the very cause of your being. Um, it's also, of course, day five uh, of the first Ashes match. Yes! Oh, my goodness me, ladies and gentlemen, I have to say, I was so nearly late. Um, I've decided uh, on the basis of the match to go heterosexual and to name my first three children Paul Collingwood Fry and James Anderson Fry and Monty Panesar Fry, who will, of course, be my favorite and whom I will never allow the world to see the, his hair. Um, it is enchanting to be here, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not 
quite sure um, what you're expecting from me. Uh, you, you, you <laughs> obviously, dance is going to feature. Um, dance, it would be paltering with the truth for me not to say so, is my life. Uh, but I may hold back on dance this evening and instead address myself to... Now, I have some issues that I, I want to share with you. They're not ones I'm immensely sure of, but this is an iTunes festival, and it seemed to me very appropriate to um, share with you some questions that I have, some deep questions about the way the world is going in terms of principally music, but music and film and television and the creative arts and the world that we all regard as digital. In other words, the world of devices and computers and so forth. Now, I'm not, I hope, going to be too dull. Um, I'll obviously be very dull for those of you who don't want me to talk about this subject, so I, I, I'd advise you to fondle the thighs of your neighbor while I speak. <laughs> But um, let's cast our mind way back to when uh, our species, uh, Homo sapiens, first had uh, emerged uh, from earlier versions, um, uh, Homo sapiens 0.1 alpha version and beta versions, if you like, Homo erectus and Neanderthal, uh, the, the, the first versions of humanity. Um, one of the first things we learned to do was to tell each other stories, it seems, around a fire. Fire is very important, incidentally. I don't know why uh, I, I mention this. It, it, it always interests me that um, the way language is so much wiser than any of us tends to be. Um, the, the, the Latin for half is focus. And we've used that word focus now to mean almost anything around which we concentrate ourselves. Focus, indeed the focus of your cameras that are pointing, I like to think, lovingly at me. Uh, and, and the old English for half is half, from which we get our word heart. So it is very deep inside us to do what you're doing, to be in a round place listening to someone telling a story, usually with a fire flickering in the middle. We can't give you a fire, we can give you a quite exciting um, uh, little uh, background display, which is based on my website, incidentally. Um, uh, and anyway, that's what, that's what we first did. When, when we'd hunted and we'd mashed up grain and we'd fought off dangerous animals and we'd survived yet another difficult day, we sat around the focus, the hearth, and we told each other stories. And that was it. They went away on the wind. They stayed in the memory, in, in what we call the wetware, the brain. They stayed in the memory, and they were sometimes transmitted from generation to generation. That's how, for example, some of the earliest poets had their poetry recorded. Homer spoke around a fire about the Iliad and the Odyssey, and others spoke it, and, and, and it eventually got written down because we then invented a technology, a technology that involved leaving impressions in wax or leaving marks on some form of fabric or animal skin, or later, in Egypt, a papyrus-based technology from which we get our word paper. Now, you know all this. It's all very obvious. It doesn't seem particularly interesting. But it's worth remembering. It's worth recalling, because I see all your lovely, uh, very pretty and eager and anxious, and some of them slightly, oh, my God, is he ever going to come to the point, faces. 
looking up at me, and I want you to remember that we are all just simply the descendants of similar-looking faces who once sat round fires and listened to stories being told and listened to songs being sung, because that was another technology that arrived. People began to put strings, animal guts and animal skins together and various parts of plants, and they managed to make noises. And at a certain time, thousand or two thousand and a half years ago, um, it was discovered that if you halved the length of a string um, and twanged it, you got the same note, as we'd now call it, uh, as the open string. And the Pythagorean theory of harmony was born. And at that time as well, people were beginning to store the bits of paper, the rolled-up parchment on which they had written things down. And all this carried on for a thousand or so years, so long as some people knew the symbols with which you could write down, and other people had the skill to entertain with music. And it was no real problem. It didn't, it, it didn't do anything other than give pleasure. It didn't do anything other than remind us that there is something deeper that quivers within us that we can call art, or we can call music, or we can call spiritual, we can call it the infinite, but it's that which engages us. And no matter how cool we try and be, no matter how much we try and separate ourselves from the world with mirror shades and attitude, we all know that inside we're very soft people who yearn to love and to be loved, and art reminds us that that is a possibility. And music connects us with that important fact about ourselves that we love love and that anything else is incidental, irrelevant, cynical and not interesting to us fundamentally. Well, so it continued. And then the church took hold. I'm, I'm fast forwarding through history, obviously, but the church took hold to some extent for a thousand years and the only way things were transmitted and knowledge was communicated from one generation to another was through those who had the the knowledge, the information, and they wrote it down in, in books, in illuminated manuscripts that took a great deal of labor, and only the elite chosen few were able to interpret them, and they were able to dominate the rest of the world by basically saying, you're ignorant, you can't read, we can, this is the truth, you will believe it. And essentially, 99% of humanity was enslaved by what we now call the Dark Ages, um, enslaved by the idea that the truth was revealed to a certain few and not available to everyone else. And this continued until, you might say, in the Middle East and in China, woodblocks in which people could carve characters, letters as we would call them, but in Chinese, of course, they're not letters, um, symbols and pictures and stories, and then could run a piece of paper over it and reproduce it in such a way they could spread it around. And this was okay, but it was very labor-intensive. But then in 1450, Gutenberg invented the moving type that led to printing. This meant that someone could have an idea in one country and write it down and take it to a print shop and that idea could be reproduced and available to anybody identically around the world. It still required that you had to read, but in 1450, when the first Gutenberg effusions were given to the world, between 1450 and 1500, 50 
million books appeared in Europe. That's how incredible the effect was. So suddenly, you were able to reproduce without error people's thoughts. So people were able to think for themselves for the very first time. And these thoughts were put down in these bound things that were called books and that were available only to a small percentage of the world, but a bigger percentage by far than had ever had access before. And then, and this is a date I want you to remember, we come to 1710 in England. I don't need to remind you as an intelligent audience who was on the throne in 1710. It was, yes, you're absolutely right. It was Queen Anne, um, who's, who died in 1714 and whose dying words were, alas, with me ends a whole period in table legs. But she, she was the last of the Stuarts. But in 1710, there was enacted something called, to this day, the Statute of Anne. And the Statute of Anne said that if you wrote a book, then the contents of the book belonged to you. You had the rights in every copy. And this was known as as you might think, as copyright. And suddenly, a whole idea was that copyright could exist. And I wrote down, actually, some of the words of this act, and I'm going to have to read them because I don't remember them, but it gives me an opportunity to wear... Exactly. <laughs> gives me an opportunity to wear my glasses. You may think these are ordinary glasses. I bought these glasses in order to baffle paparazzi like you. So watch, wait a moment. Ha-ha! Yes, you see? Ah, I can flash back. Here we are. So this is a quotation from the 1710 Statute of Anne. For the encouragement of learning, to their very great detriment and too often to the ruin of authors without their consent, no copyright is granted. So the act was given for the encouragement of learned men to compose and write useful books, which seems very noble. And this did indeed allow, from 1710 right up until the 19th century, the explosion of reading and writing that took place in our country and in the rest of Europe. Um, and in America, I suppose I ought to include. Um, uh, uh, well, now I believe most of them can indeed, almost in a fashion, read. So, um, it, no, shush, no, but nonsense. Um, the, the, most of the uh, famous newspapers and things were born over the next hundred years or so. Uh, essays, um, and of course, um, Newton was still alive at the time of 1710. Science, huge advances, advances that pushed back the insistence of the church on what facts were, which caused huge bestsellers like The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin and so on. But in 1886, I believe I'm right in saying, um, the rest of the world caught on and there was a, an agreement made in the city of Bern, the capital of Switzerland. Um, and the, 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 this, this accord of Bern cla claimed and asserted that essentially in order to own your own, what we would now call, intellectual property. All you had to do was assert it. You didn't have to register it. You didn't have to apply for it. 
you only had to use what they call in the act a legend, which to us is the famous C with a circle around it. Any of you who have ever tried to write a sketch or a poem or a song and have wanted to make sure that nobody steals it from you, you probably know that all you have to do is put at the bottom C, my name, 2009. Incidentally, just in case there are any incredibly stupid people here, when I say my name, <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. I mean, you have to write M-Y-N-A-M-E. So, and it, if the year is 2010, then don't write 2009. That's the other thing. But we all probably know that's essentially how copyright works. Oddly enough, the United States of America did not sign an agreement to the Bern Accord until 1989, 103, 104 years after it had actually first been written down. Anyway, in the meantime... Technology didn't just stay with Gutenberg's movable press. Something else happened. You probably know that Thomas Alva Edison uh, found a way of recording sound using membranes and vibrating needles and a strange medium of a cylinder in which um, uh, sounds waggled the, 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 the cylinder membrane that caused a registration of the sound waves in analog form onto the wax of the cylinder that could then be reproduced in a mold that then, when another stylus played it, enabled it to make a noise that was roughly a recording of whatever had been taken down. In other words, the first phonograph, as it was called. Then a man called Oscar Deutsch discovered that it was a lot easier to, to flatten it out into a disc. And for a long time, it was possible to buy music on these discs made of shellac using a a membrane which is either a horn came out to amplify it or, or a little round membrane with a sort of disc. Uh, anyway, th those are the early record players that you see sold in Camden Market around the corner and other such places. And, and they were very successful. And uh, Enrico Caruso became the first person to sell a million of these in the early part of the 20th century. It was no threat to the, um, to the Statute of Anne or to the Bern Agreement in terms of copyright because the only way you could buy one of these records was from a shop. Um, there was a one, one called His Master's Voice, for example, very famous one. HMV still exists to this day, as you know. And uh, if you bought a record, you were naturally buying it from a licensed recorder of the artist. So you were paying the, the, the musician for it. And this continued right the way through to the Second World War. And then a Nazi technology emerged, um, which was the reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, which you may not be aware was a, a German Second World War invention that had been deliberately um, uh, developed in order to deceive the Allies as to where the leaders of the Nazi party were at any one time. In those days... If you made a speech like this, for example, and it went out on the radio, and it went out on the radio at reasonably high quality like this, then it was obviously live. Therefore, if people heard Stephen Fry on the radio talking to the roundhouse, they knew he was in Camden, so they could go and burgle his house, for example. Except you can't, because there's someone there, in case you're listening, by the way. Um, but... The Nazis knew enough about the emerging electronic science that was being um, done by various companies of theirs, uh, AGFA, for example, um, to know that it was possible to have a recording technology which was so high fidelity that you could play the Fuhrer's speech 
and it would sound as if it was live. It wouldn't have the usual hiss and crackle of a record. And they did this, and it was only when, at the end of the Second World War, when the Americans were liberating Berlin and various other major cities, they discovered these machines, these, these reel-to-reel tape recorders, that uh, the, the technology arrived in America and then in Britain. And suddenly, for the first time, there was a technology that allowed the ordinary individual to record his or her voice or his or her records onto this tape. Admittedly, you had to be rather rich because these reel-to-reel tape recorders are very expensive. But it didn't threaten music. It didn't threaten what we think of as uh, 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 the, the great commercial companies, the, the labels, if you like. And as far as television and film were concerned, which had also been developed on this time, there was no possible way anyone could record film or television. But then... You may know the Philips company in Holland developed something called the tape cassette. And the tape cassette, for the first time, put a recording technology in every man's pocket, every man and every woman's pocket. Suddenly, and I was one of the generation when these came out, suddenly you could have a machine with this little cassette, you could put it in its recorder, you could connect it to your record player, and in real time, that's to say it wasn't a high-speed dub, it was a, a, a however long the record was it would take to record onto the tape, and you could put the tape in your car or into what in the early, well, the late 70s and early 80s was the, the first Sony Walkman, and you could uh, reproduce them. And it was quite exciting. And we all loved this fact, because I was a poor student, and I thought, wow, how fabulous. I can go to my friend's house, and I can record his records. And as a reward, he can come to my house, and he can record my records, and we can both have compilation tapes, and, and we'll play them, and we'll be very happy, and it'll all be fantastic. And for the first time, suddenly the record companies got very antsy about this, and they started to produce campaigns. Taping is killing live music was the famous poster um, that came out. And we were made to feel slightly squalid and dirty for, for doing this. Um, but of course, of course, this was only the beginning because a very small fast forward into the 80s and the age of computing arrived. Now, computers had existed before, but computers had been, as the name implies, computational devices, calculating machines, machines for providing data and for crunching numbers, nothing to do with reproducing music or images. Well, as you know, in the last 10 years, it has been possible for any one of us to be able to reproduce the music on a CD, the images on a DVD, a digital versatile disc, or indeed any image that is streamed to us on our computer. You don't have to be that smart to be able in real time to record a YouTube image that comes over your computer, do you? You really don't. You don't have to be that smart to record an iPlayer program that the BBC has streamed to your computer. They don't make it easy for you, but a few Googles and you can do it. You don't have to be that dumb to want to watch The Watchmen. Well, actually, you do. You have to be very dumb to want to watch it because it's a crashing disappointment. But <laughs> you, d you don't have to be very dumb to be able to make a BitTorrent inquiry that enables you to download The Watchmen or whatever movie it is that isn't yet available on DVD or may even still be out in the cinema. Um, all these things are now possible. 
And you will have to have been living in a cave not to be aware that this is upsetting the film industry, the music industry, and all the industries that hold the rights to the so-called intellectual property. Now, what I want to say as I end my speech, if it is a speech, my address to you all, and I'm not sure that I know what I really think about this, but I want to say that I have a suspicion that my business, in other words, the film business, the television business, the music business, is doing the wrong thing. It is, especially in America, but it is also doing it in Europe and here in Britain, it is aggressively prosecuting people who illegally download. Now, I think most of us would agree that somebody who downloads on an industrial scale in order to sell and make a profit probably should be prosecuted. But what I have tried to make the people in my own business understand, and many of them refuse to understand it, is that it does no good whatsoever to label people as criminals. We all know that preposterous, irritating commercial that's on every fucking DVD <laughs> of that, you wouldn't steal a handbag, no. And you want to make, I mean, <laughs> you want to find the person who made that commercial and say, can you not see the difference? Are you truly so blind as to think that all morality is so absolute that somebody who bit torrents an episode of their favorite American TV show, 24, so they can see an episode before anybody else, is the same as somebody who steals somebody's handbag. Do you not see the difference? Do you not see that when I was illegally taping, it didn't mean I crossed a line into criminality from which I can never escape, that I am now a criminal, I will never be a good citizen, I am the enemy of the copyright makers, the enemy of the creative artist, I am destroying live music. Do you not see it's because I was a student, because I loved music, because I wanted a good compilation, because I was excited about the possibilities of having my own compilation, and that the moment I could afford to buy music, I bought music, because I wanted to. And that is what... 98%, I would submit, at the very least, of all of you are like. I bet most of you have illegally downloaded at some time. But that does not mean that you are now the enemies of society. It does not now mean you should be characterized as criminals and pirates and destroyers of art and enemies of musicians and enemies of filmmakers. And the, you know, that is, seems to me so stupid. It's stupid simply psychologically, because it seems to misunderstand how human beings are, we're not like one, we're not, we're not nouns, we're verbs, we're processes, we are being things through our life. We're not now suddenly criminals. It also misunderstands a lot of extremely important research that shows actually weak copyright encourages artistic creation. There's been a very important Harvard study that has shown exactly that. Another Dutch study showed that. That the harder you are, the more you crack down on, and there are various ways of doing it, one of which is throttling the pipeline, throttling the broadband pipeline. So if anybody uses a BitTorrent, a peer-to-peer -peer sharing network, they are suddenly given, you know, a sort of phone dial-up speed 
internet connection instead of the broadband one they're paid, they're paid for. Or by the recording rights industry people from music in this country and America and elsewhere making incredible swoops on ordinary citizens whom they managed to catch out and making examples of them by taking them to court and having them fined hundreds of thousands of pounds for downloading a film or something. I think it is the stupidest thing the recording industry can do is to alienate people who love music. I mean, how can you be so dumb? Surely the one thing you want to do is to come to a sensible accommodation. And I suppose the reason I wanted to talk about this is this is a music festival. We've got extraordinary bands over this whole month performing. I don't believe that most of them are actually in favor of the kinds of draconian policing that their record companies and the PRS and various other people who are pursuing so actively and so angrily are are doing. I think most of us actually say, look, lighten up. Um, the fact is, there is an urge for creativity on both sides. There's an urge for people to participate in music and in film and in television and to watch it and to see it. And yes, of course, if they're young and they're poor and they can get it free, they'll get it free. But then, frankly, when they've got a job, they find it easier to go into a shop and buy it or to download it through a through a normal paying uh, uh, institution or, 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 or similar. So that's what I wanted to discuss. I'm not sure I'm right. I know that a lot of what I've said might be considered very controversial. And it is perfectly possible that there will be headlines in certain uh, um, uh, you know, websites, certain newspapers, saying Stephen Fry says, open the door to all manner of piracy. And then I'll have friends of mine saying, you irresponsible asshole, how dare you do this? You're stealing the bread from the mouths of poor songwriters and poor um, uh, 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 filmmakers and so on. I've yet to meet a poor filmmaker, but there you go. Um, uh, <laughs> no, of course there are. I'm, I'm being very unfair. But the fact is, this is something I think we really ought to talk about. And I think the problem is the only people who've talked about it in the Digital Britain debate that led up to the Carter report that recently came out were industry insiders. And the only people who talk about it on, on the serious websites are either people who work for the record companies or people who, you know, work as sort of kind of mavericks outside the industry. And both of them have a very vested interest in either opening everything up or closing everything down. I think it's people like us, the well, more you than me, let's be honest, the, the, uh, the consumers of, 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 of music who have been ignored in this debate. And, and my suspicion is that you are not all thieving bastards who will just take anything that you can get free and to hell with whoever created it. If you had the opportunity to pay a reasonable price fairly, you would be a loyal supporter, customer of your band, your musician, your film, whatever, um, but, and, and we just need to work out how that can best be done in the light of the current technology. That's really all I've got to say. It wasn't particularly amusing, um, but that's it. Thank you. You're very kind. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, uh, you're very, oh, you're terribly, terribly sweet. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Most, um, most important thing now is that, uh, is that you have your say about this. Some of you may well be songwriters who think that what I'm saying is dangerous nonsense. Others may think I don't get far enough. But whatever it is, if you have something to say, you can either tweet it. I'm going, oh, I've still got my, 
I've still got my lights on. Got my lights on still. Hang on, turn them off. There we are. Um, I'm going to open my Twitter client and uh, see if there are any tweets coming in. Or you can um, try and shout a question to young Tom here. I've, um, I've written a few down as well for and you. And he's written some down, you see. There yeah. you go. OK, uh, before we go into that, a big thank you for that, uh, oh. for that speech. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and may I say, very rock and roll as well, very suitable to the venue. Um, so, yeah, we're going to get interactive now. Uh, we want your, your questions, ideally not the kind of how do I set up my Wi-Fi router kind of questions. <laughs> Basically, got, switch, it on, switch it off and switch it on again. I've got a tweeted one here that actually I think a lot of you will want to ask because it's, it's a very sensible question. Is How do I feel about people pirating my work? Um, I... I suppose I ought to care more. Um, I, 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 I've never seen it done on such a scale that worries me. I am not trying to get points for being noble, but I think I'm in an overpaid, overpraised, overpampered profession, and that I'm paid perfectly well enough. And, um, and if, if certain fish slip through the net, the, the, the mesh is still narrow enough for me to have a very lucky, privileged, and happy life spreading the work that I do, which I do for pleasure. The money is a marvelous way of keeping score, and I do love certain <laughs> luxuries at my age and size, like traveling first class or whatever it might be. And uh, if I couldn't do that because no one paid for copyrights on my work, then I'd, I'd go on the streets as a prostitute and earn it that way. <laughs> and, um, so, <laughs> so I've, you know... I, Again, if I, if I thought someone was doing cynically in order, you know, in order to rip other people off, I mean, one of the issues is to have control over the material so that it isn't degraded. In, in other words, if you're a songwriter or a producer, an engineer, and you, you produce a beautiful album with a fabulous acoustic and the most wonderful EQ and the most beautiful uh, production, and then it's appallingly reproduced flatly and badly, and it, and it actually gets gets the atmosphere and the whole production wrong, then that's genuinely upsetting. Um, but uh, otherwise, I, you know, I have to say, I accept that a certain amount will go. A bit like a shop owner. You know that a certain percentage is going to get shoplifted. It doesn't stop you owning the shop. Well, Jay Hope Faulkner will appreciate that because he's tweeted to say, I downloaded this speech yesterday. <laughs> Very good. Do we uh, have a question from Rory Catherine Jones? Because I think, um, is he, is he He's Ruskin? over there. He's a, he, at uh, Ruskin147, there he is. You, you might this have is to the shout BBC's it out because we're going to really struggle composer. to get Mike through the audience. So. We'll hear you if you shout, Rory. Um, why will people buy when it's free is a good question. I know um, Tom with an H um, when they, they, they did various, um, uh, didn't they, uh, experiments with, with downloading free material. It is a good question. It's Rory, who's the BBC's technology correspondent, and I have to say, uh, if you agree with me, one of the great things about living in Britain is the BBC does an extremely good job of covering technological issues, I think, and Rory is part of the reason, so I'm a big fan of his, and well done. Yeah, great. Um, but... Um, no, I mean, I appreciate that my argument is going to fall down, as all these arguments do, on the very prickly hedge of, uh, so, how much is, what is a low price, how do you police it, 
Um, if people can always get it free, won't they always get it free? Well, no, I don't think that's true, because the fact is they can always get it free if they, if they work hard enough, and the fact is people do buy. I mean, when Michael Jackson died, people didn't immediately go and BitTorrent, or if they did go and immediately BitTorrent his number ones and Thriller, they also downloaded for money as many copies of Thriller on iTunes Store and Amazon and all the other outlets uh, as you could possibly imagine, and he shot up the charts. Um, I don't think... I mean, this is my point, and, and I know it's, it's probably going to be cast into the, into, the, into the mall pit as being entirely naive, but I genuinely think better of people than it seems uh, music companies do. That's all, I think. Yeah. Okay, um, I've got one on Twitter here for you, um, which fits in. Uh, how do you suggest a new artist, uh, what do you suggest a new artist does to be successful in terms of fans, not in terms of money? That's from RCI in the audience. Well, that's a really good question. I mean, there's a band coming on this evening, Sunford and Mums. <laughs> that can't be right, can it, ladies and gentlemen? No, but shush. Very sweet, um, Mumford and Sons. Uh, I was chatting and taking drugs with earlier, and, and um, <laughs> um, they're terribly nice. Um, a year ago, they, uh, as the proverbial saying has, couldn't get arrested. Um, they now have an enormous fan base. I'm sure some of you have come here to see them. They are magnificent. Yeah. Um, how did they get that big? Actually, uh, love technology as I do. It wasn't through viral means. It wasn't through Facebook and MySpace presence. It wasn't through YouTube. It was through doing gigs in small places. And people came to see them and loved them and spread the word perhaps virally, because that's the way the word is spread these days, digitally, but it was by being out there and performing. And I suspect that will always be the case with musicians. I mean, technology, which I love, is always subservient to talent. Um, it's why we use the word client and slave in computing sometimes. You, uh, you know, the, 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 when, when, when Photoshop first appeared or when um, Sibelius or some of the music programs first appeared, I remember getting terribly excited and buying them and thinking, hey, I've got this amazing program that art, you can do paint like Van Gogh and you can do musically things with MIDI like... And it, oh, hang on, I'm completely talentless. And... <laughs> My friends who are musically talented did amazing things with MIDI. And my friends who could paint and draw did extraordinary things with Photoshop. And I like to think I did reasonable things with, with a word processor, because I could process words, because that was the, my shtick. But, you know, we, we mustn't think that the digital world can upload talent into our brains, because it can't. That's that. Very good. Okay, uh, so can we maybe have a shouted out question? Uh, stick your hands up first and I'll choose somebody. What, what have I illegally downloaded? The last thing I illegally downloaded, um, was, it a genre, was it a Cadino gay sex romp or was it a... Um, <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, I'm trying to think. It was, I have to say, it was probably some time ago. Um, as much... Um, let me, oh, gosh... I have... Oh, i tell you what it was. <laughs> i tell you what it was, though I made up for it. It was the season finale, as they call it, of the last uh, series of House that my friend Hugh is in. <laughs> because I, I'd, I'd watched them all. Up, I'd watched them all, 
up until, uh, uh, and I had the season pass on iTunes, but really annoyingly, I was abroad in, in Indonesia, in a place that didn't have the broadband um, bandwidth to allow me to download it from iTunes, but it could do it over three days through a BitTorrent, and I was filming there, so I BitTorrented it, but I like to think because I paid for it anyway, it doesn't really count. So, anyway, I'll buy you a drink. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, a couple of, of questions coming in here about uh, the fact that the, tonight's uh, gig, the ticket said, do not bring recording devices into the venue. <laughs> Meanwhile, we've got another tweet, uh, I won't say who from, saying, I've already uploaded it to YouTube, <laughs> Rory. Uh, so, so, yes, tell me. Well, I mean, the fact is, here are lots of recording devices. We take recording devices with us wherever we go. There's a marvellous line in Oscar Wilde's masterpiece, The Importance of Being Earnest, where um, the character of Sicily talks about uh, how she's busy writing her diary. And Miss Prism, her teacher, says, Memory, Miss Prism, is the diary we all carry around with us. And memory is the iPhone we all have in our head between our ears. But the fact is, you've all got phones here. There's a Lumix there, and uh, another one there. There's a, oh, yeah, there we are. There's obviously, that looks like a Blackberry over there. And there's uh, lots of devices uh, in which you are recording things. And um, most of them, at the moment, <laughs> are going to produce... Uh, uh, sound and vision of such ineffably crap quality that no one is going to be that interested except yourselves as a memory. But, um, yeah, of course, Apple uh, have been in a difficult position. Apple invented their own form of DRM. You know what I mean by DRM, digital rights management. It's the, it's the digital lock that is put on the music and the films that are sold in the iTunes store, for example, and the Apple version, which is called Fair Play, um, proved very strong and wasn't cracked by many people. Um, and that's the reason when you download something from iTunes, you pay for it, you can't put it on someone else's iPhone. But recently, as you probably know, Steve Jobs, before he was ill and left, and now he's come back, glad to say, um, but he actually put out an edict that Apple was going to go, it was going to unlock its music. There would be no, no DRM, no, no digital locks on the music. And I think that's a good thing. Okay, we're talking which, that, that relates to another question we've got here from Emerson P. Do you think streaming services like Spotify will replace downloads? Well, uh, Spotify is a very interesting case, isn't it? And we're rather proud of the fact that, like the, like the World Wide Web, it's British. Um, but um, it's, uh, I think what Spotify will do, because the, 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 the lesson was from Napster. You remember the Napster service? Well, some of you are far too young to remember the Napster service, but that was one of the earlier uh, uh, sharing, free sharing services that fell foul of the, uh, uh, the RIAA, the, the American uh, Recording uh, Association. Um, I think, you're probably not aware, or you may be aware without knowing that you're aware, that television in this country and radio has, a, has an agreement with the Performing Rights Society which is called a buyout. That's to say, every year, the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, all our major broadcasters pay an enormous sum of money to the P Performing Rights Society, which means that they can play and use all music on domestic programs whenever they like. That's why, if you watch a kind of... Oh, uh, buy a home in the West Country for a bargain um, with a celebrity type program, almost every three minutes they splice together seven 
bits of music, irritatingly. It's usually the young folks or something at the moment. They seem to be obsessed with playing that everywhere. Um, <laughs> shut up! And, um, but the point is they don't have to pay for every time they use it. If you, if you make a feature film, you have to do a deal with a music company that costs you millions. I think Spotify will do a buyout in the same way with the Performing Rights Society. I think they'll borrow the money to do a buyout. I think they'll probably pay less than others, and I think that will allow the thing to work, I suspect. I don't know whether that model will adhere, but that seems to me the way they'll do question it. Is, the question is where they make their money from. Oh, where they make their money from. Well, that's what I remember when people said that about Google. They said, well, Google's very popular, or, but surely it'll never make any money. <laughs> the fact is... Any, any throughput, any click-through, any use we make of a service like Spotify, if they wish to, um, if they wish to sort of, I was about to say suck a bit of us off, but that can't be right. Um, if, they, if they wish to use the information that we have been through there and the music we like and where we come from um, in order to register on any kind of new commercial venture, they will do that. Then they will be able to make money. Let's take a question from over there. They've had their hands up for the whole of that last oh, question. Sorry, yes. so, yeah, go on. You need to check. Oh, are we getting a microphone? Um, I was just wondering, um, with Pirate Bay, very loud. Um, with Pirate Bay, I've been in Sweden. Yes. <laughs> I don't think I have to join the Pirate Bay. I think I tweeted at the time that I thought the judgment against Pirate Bay was a, was a sad day because I thought, um, um, you know, that... I, I thought people should just grow up. I thought the, you know, the recording industry should grow up. They should not make such a fuss about Pirate Bay that the very fact of attacking them in the way they did gave them infinitely more publicity than, than the commercial companies would have liked. So... Um, I don't know, yeah, my heart goes out always to a maverick group of people like the Pirate Bay people. Uh, you'll instantly get spokesmen from, they're a bit like, I mean, I, this is very unfair, but it's, they're a bit like Big Tobacco, <laughs> the music companies. They have an enormous amount of money to spend on lawyers, and those lawyers will badmouth the enemies of, of, of their approach. So there were instantly smear stories put out against the, the Pirate Bay people saying that they were making millions, that they were cynical, um, you know, technocrats who were not interested in freedom and so on. So you, you will find there's a lot of that. Okay, I've got one on um, Twitter here, just changing the, slightly, uh, the subject slightly. When did you realize that the people of Britain now think of you as a legend? Oh, <laughs> Well, it's true, isn't it? I was, I was doing a search, and just in one day of Twitter, there were, there were two people calling for you to be knighted. Oh, I know. <laughs> You're very sweet. I, I don't know. I, I can't... It, it's just enchanting that people are so nice to me, and I don't deserve it. And all I would say is um, I, um, I love this world that allows me to connect to so many people in such an interesting and stimulating way. And, and um, whether it's Twitter or it, whether it'll, it'll be something else in five years' time, it is so fantastically enjoyable. And 
I, it's again, it's a bit like my business. There are some people in my business who want to be in fortresses, who want to pull up the drawbridge and live in a castle and not connect with the world. And I don't understand that, partly, I suppose, because I have a very high sense of mortality. And there are only a few years on this planet. And I sometimes think, can you imagine what it would be like if there were a St. Peter when you died? And he said, so what did you think of Twitter? And they went, oh, I never tried it. I thought it was dreadful. Oh, what did you think of cannabis? Oh, I never tried it. I thought it was dreadful. What did you... I went to all this fucking trouble to make these exciting things on the planet and you never tried them. There's a, there's a famous saying, I think it was by Arnold Bax, the composer, which is, in this life, you should try everything once except incest and country dancing. <laughs> there you are. Okay. <laughs> So again, we've got uh, two people over there with their hands up. I need one question. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, it's going, we don't want Munford to be on late, but if you can send a piece of paper via the very lovely lady with the mobile phone, I will give you my autograph. But obviously, this shouldn't be what I believe is known as precedential, or there will be... It's precedential, not presidential. Um, I shouldn't set a precedent because otherwise there would be the very dull sight of me signing. Okay, so a lot we've of got time for two more questions. She's actually cutting off her arm for me to sign. <laughs> oh no, it's a bracelet. I'm very touched. Okay. You managed to get one of those bracelets off. I could never do that. I always stay with them three days. Yeah. Okay, do Sorry. You, do you want to shout your question there? <laughs> you know you're very observant and slightly creepy for noticing <laughs> that I am wearing the same t-shirt that I wore on Top Gear but the reason is <laughs> it's a creepy adoration of my friends at Apple because although you wouldn't notice it um, it actually says Apple Store Munich 61208 and it celebrates the opening of the München Apple Store um, and uh, I just, um, I quite liked it. And I thought, what am I going to wear here? I, I better be something to, to sort of lick the inner thigh of Apple. And uh, so it, it turned out to be this. But thank you for noticing, and uh, award yourself several points. <laughs> okay, we've got uh, one, the guy in the white shirt at the back there. You'll have to shout really loudly. I, I got the first part. The, I said I thought it was okay for people without money to download files, but... Yeah, no, I mean, this is the point. You see, I mean, you're absolutely right. I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying it is absolutely fine for people to download music for free and not consider the consequences. What I am saying, I'm really... My argument is addressed not to people who download. It's more addressed to people who want so actively, proactively, aggressively to, um, to prosecute those who download. I want them to think about the way the average person does download and not to characterize any downloader as being the same 
as somebody who steals a handbag, for example, or someone who beats up an old lady for drug money. It's not the same thing. You know, you can't just say all crime is the same. I absolutely agree that it's something that needs to be thought about, and that's why I wanted to open it to discussion. And I would be very saddened if I thought that the only thing that you came away with from this was that I was basically saying, it's fine to download, don't think about it. What I'm saying is, I know that most people are like me, and that is that when they do something, they do think about the consequences. We do feel guilt. Hell, most of us feel guilt when we masturbate, even though we live in 2009. We still feel guilt. We still feel guilt about almost anything we do. We still are aware that there are consequences to our actions. And I'm just saying, you know, that that's what we all ought to, to be, is people who say, do I need to download this? No, I probably don't need to download this BitTorrent. It's just, I just, I can buy the one track and that's fine. Or I'll download this now for free, but in, when my paycheck comes in, I'll download the proper version and then I'll feel okay. I'll be square with myself. I think most of us are decent and honest in that sense. But I don't think we're made more decent and more honest by being bullied by incredibly rich people who have three houses and, you know, private jets and claim poverty. That's all. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to wrap it up there. If you do have more questions for Stephen, obviously you can keep on tweeting him or search, him out, search yeah. you out on Grinder, I believe. Can... <laughs> Grinder, of course. <laughs> so, thank you very, very much. Uh, it's been a fantastic speech. Stephen Fry, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email me at zocosoro at gmail.com. That's X-ray Oscar Kilo Echo Sierra Oscar Romeo Uniform at gmail.com. Or you can visit me at zoke.org, X-ray Oscar Kilo Echo, period Oscar Romeo Golf. And you can give me feedback through there. Thank you again for your time. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Hack the Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.